Welcome to the real world. Okay, straight into it. We are straight down to business on the Sky Scorchers, episode two. That's right. We don't know who started the war, but we know we blacked out the sun. Uh, my name is Matt Waters. I'm joined by Mike Thomas. We are looking at The Matrix Reloaded. Mike, this podcast is reloaded. How do you feel about it, and how are you? Uh, I'm doing well. This is such an interesting movie to talk about. I'm very excited for it. Yeah, uh, I ran 12 years in the making, I gather. Yeah, now... I know you watched The Matrix, you know, like on tape, like most people our age, after it came out in theaters. Did I, you see I, this in the theater? I did. I was just thinking to myself, what age rating was this in this country? Because I definitely saw this in in theaters, which I definitely didn't the first one, as we discussed last time. But yeah, yeah, I, I saw this when it came out. Because I, I think it's a kind of important to put ourselves back in that place where the the first Matrix is... Uh, a cultural phenomenon mm. uh, you know in that once every couple of years type of way like not every like it's not every year you get a movie that is as big of a phenomenon as the matrix yeah and so the idea of a sequel coming out is was a pretty big deal yeah and you know i this i did see this one this is actually the only matrix movie i saw in the theaters was the reloaded oddly enough mm. and it, it was a really 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 big deal yeah. And I, I don't think we can stress that point enough. Like, this is not an ordinary sequel. Very highly anticipated, massive marketing push. Like, people were stealing the promotional materials. Uh, yeah, they... I mean, I, I can think now that if, let's say, let's say I was, you know, my current age then, I would have been even more excited. And I don't even think, I don't even remember being excited that much. But it was really a big deal. I think now I'd be way too hyped for it. I'm, I probably would have been disappointed as a result. Um, I'm not even sure I had access to the internet in my house when this was coming out. Like it would have been like in schools and public places and stuff, but I I definitely didn't get the internet yeah. until like a year or so later. Yeah. But yeah, so you know it's a huge deal. Yeah. They're doing a very weird thing where I well they, they do a pretty uncommon thing, which is they film the sequels back to back. Yes, that does not happen all that often. Right. That in itself is a pretty unusual thing. In the last 20 years, the times that come to mind are the first Lord of the Rings, Mm -hmm. the Matrix, the second two Pirates of the Caribbean, the last two Harry Potters, uh, the Hobbit, and the current Avengers. Yeah, Yeah, the Affinity Wars. Mm -hmm. I I wouldn't say there's nothing else, but off the top of my head, I really can't think of anything else. A better podcast would have done some research. (laughs) I did a a tiny bit. But that transitions to uh, what we're going to kick off first here, because... I'll just mute my mic for a while, let you Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> okay. Good sob 10, 15 minutes here. And this did not really click with me at the time, particularly the fact that Matrix Revolutions, I did not watch in theaters, despite enjoying Reloaded. I don't even think I saw it for years later I think, until I saw I it think like, on tape. I think the box office numbers would reflect that was a common sentiment, because this yeah. one did almost double... The first one, and then Revolutions did about the same as that first one. So, and I think we'll probably talk more why we think that happened in yes. the next episode. But it's it is funny though because I think mostly if you ask people, they would say they like Reloaded. So it's kind of funny that the next one dropped off so big. But it really clicked with me after I saw the Pirates of the Caribbean sequels. Oh right, okay, yeah. And and the, my big thing is I remember one of the biggest wet farts for me with this movie is that at the end, Neo is in this, like, 
completely comatose state after he inside you know the tunnels of the remain of earth that was he stops the squiddies as they call him on his own as almost as if he was neo in the matrix like that level of power and he's knocked unconscious from this he's in a coma and it's this big cliffhanger of like what the hell's gonna happen with neo oh my god and then they spend the first half hour of revolutions this i do remember basically trying to get neo back from this comatose state the train man yeah, and we'll get, we'll get into the details of that, obviously, next week. But it's this premise that we need to rescue our main character to start a film that is, I think, one of the most cynical ways you can kick off a movie and one of the most cynical ways to frame a cliffhanger. And I didn't it didn't connect with me how bad of a decision that was back in 2003 with, with this movie. I mean, I was 14. I didn't see Revolutions until years later, et cetera, et cetera. But it clicked with me with the Pirates of the Caribbean when they had to spend... Sorry for the spoilers here. Uh, they spend the first half hour of the third Pirates of the Caribbean movie trying to save Jack Sparrow from like the underworld or some shit because he's eaten by a giant thing. And basically, I mean, well, I made the connection then. I think it's, I think it's pretty, it holds up pretty well for the basic anecdotal experience is that the Empire Strikes Back had just this profound impact on everybody that likes to make fucking movies, especially these kinds of movies. Mm-hmm. And one of the coolest things about The Empire Strikes Back is that the coolest fucking character in the movie gets taken out and frozen in carbonite at the end. And that leads to one of the best sequences in Return of the Jedi, one of the best sequences in all Star Wars, which is the rescue of Han Solo. And one, I think everyone really, really loves that. And for good reason. It's excellent. Two, I think people have really wanted to recreate this feeling. They want to recreate this idea in some way. And it's such a tempting thing when, one, it's done so excellently. And two, it seems such an attention grabber. Like, wow, this is things could not possibly be lower right now for our main characters. What a hook for the third film. The all is lost moment. Yes. And this is classic three-part storytelling. It does make sense in, in theory. Here's the problem, though. And there's two key things about the success of of why it works artistically in Empire Strikes Back or Return of the Jedi, and why it does not work specifically in the case of Pirates of the Caribbean and The Matrix. One, Han Solo, they legit did not know if he was coming back for the third one. He, unlike the other two people, had was on one-film contracts, and Harrison Ford is notoriously a little Harrison Fordy about things. <laughs> so one, there was actually a genuine reason to do that. That is always something you should always keep in mind. Two, Han Solo is not the main character of Star Wars. No. You could even argue that he's like the third or fourth most important character in Star Wars in the original trilogy. Everyone loves Han Solo. Everybody wants Han Solo to be part of the action. He's the Wolverine to Luke Skywalker's Cyclops. He does not need to be in the action. Any any way straight forward. The story can move forward without him. Some could argue the story might move forward in better ways without him. I'm not saying I am. I'm just saying you can literally make that case. The premise of the entire story is not dependent on his existence in there. If Luke Skywalker had been frozen in Carbonite, that would have brought the entire movie to a complete standstill. The story doesn't make sense without Luke Skywalker. You can't, there's no stakes in it. Obviously, he's going to be rescued. Now, yes, you can be cynical, be like, yes, obviously Han Solo is going to be rescued too. But you can still suspend your disbelief just enough to believe maybe this rescue will backfire and Han Solo won't make it. And that is not the case with Neo and Jack fucking Sparrow. Well, because well, yeah, yeah. it should have been the case with Jack Sparrow. Hmm. It, like, you know, I was like, they should have been able to configure it in a way where it didn't make sense. Yeah, he was meant to be. But the, yeah. after the first 
I mean, in the first film, a Pirates of the Caribbean, Jack Sparrow really is Han Solo, but then he be, kind of becomes like Luke Skywalker. That's, I mean, we don't have to, we, we literally don't have time to, to talk about or watch Pirates of the Caribbean again. But you say that we're not doing it. Okay. <laughs> Actually, that doesn't bring me. I do want. We at the end, we should attack on a quick conversation about why we're watching the Matrix because we forgot to do that in the first episode. Sure. This decision by by the Wachowskis is very, 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 very misguided, and I. I think it harms the next film more so than this one, but it's impossible to to do a retrospective on this series when you know what happens and you see that moment and you're just like, God, that's so fucking stupid. And it bother, it's certainly less bothersome now when you know you have both Blu-rays sitting right next to each other and you can just jump right into the next part. But it does feel awfully dumb in the context of this is a movie and not a miniseries. Throwing... I mean, literally, like, the chosen one, too. I mean, it's, it's, like, it's right. It has to be about him. Like, there's no if ands, or buts about it. Like, it's about Neo. Like, the story cannot move on without Neo. And you're setting it up that basically the idea that we have to care enough that we want the rescue. Oh, it's so stupid. It drives me nuts. I almost, I've been, and I've been wanting to yell about this for a good solid 11, 12 years. I just have not been able to put the words together in written form eloquently enough. I nearly did after the Avengers um, this time, but I just, I end up not doing it. But just, they put the entire cast in Carbonite, Mike. <laughs> and it's like. <sighs> Spoilers for Avengers. Yeah. I guess. The, carbon, the Carbonite was unexpected. <laughs> but, and listen, I, I, I'm not, it's not that unsympathetic to the argument. Like, it's not the point that you're supposed to believe he's going to be gone. It's the story they're choosing to tell. Yada, 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 yada. Mm. Okay, of course. But is it a good story? Is it a story that should be told? And realistically, the answer is no. No. I mean, I was and, uh, I was busy tripping out over the fact that he takes down Sentinels in the real world. And coming out of this movie, I was like, the real world's just a second level of the Matrix, man. It's just another layer of control. And that's not where they go, no. but it kind of is true I, I mean well i the one exciting part from about revolutions is i remember none of it besides the opening <laughs> bit really and even the opening bit i just kind of remember the existence of yeah um it's so sh- it's shorter than both of these movies and it feels like it feels like they do that opening thing let's go get neo they sit about for a couple of minutes and they're like right off to the conclusion we go and it feels like it's in the ending for a very long time based on the way you're describing it it kind of feels actually kind of similar to the structure of the second you know the two-part harry potter finale that if you're familiar with that the second movie is basically just one long including action sequence which is kind of a fascinating approach to storytelling i'm not yeah i'm not even saying bad one way or the other because i have not rewatched revolutions yet but uh it's it's weird so you know fitting for this matrix movie we should just make it as confusing as possible and just keep going backwards okay. so we're starting with the ending yes we're gonna go to the scene basically right before that which is <laughs> the architect matt yes so maybe the biggest info dump in the history of cinema just neo walks into a room where an old white man just explains that the entire matrix and destroys any scrap of like what we think the larger story has been up until now like morpheus has his tales of who the one is a man long ago who who has returned and 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 he can do anything he can change the matrix he can do whatever he wants and he will free us all no turns out 
there's been about six matrixes. Each time the one has reached this room and reset the matrix, they've destroyed Zion, and then the one has gone and made a new Zion with some people, and just not told them that any of this happened. And the entire concept of the one is just a larger form of control to keep humans busy, to keep the resistance busy, because a certain percentage of people don't accept the matrix, and the one is basically, like, he collects bugs, basically. Like, he gathers up all their bugs, and then... Re Whatever. It's all maths. It's very, very wordy. I think it is simultaneously really well written and absolute garbage, and I kind of love watching it in a bubble all the time. <laughs> the first one we talked about last week, how there's so much kind of mystery and sort of half-answered questions and starting in the middle, that kind of thing. And this whole film and the one that follows it and all the supplementary material, like, it fleshes, it makes the world bigger, but it opens them up to a lot of confusion and like new questions and it diminishes certain aspects of things and I think this is a great example of it where you know you close that first film he can fly and he stopped bullets and according to Morpheus he can do basically anything and then you open this movie with he fights three agents he, you know he has an easy time but it's kind of like, why is he fighting them at all? Can he not just do what he did to Smith? Like, And then, you know, you, you, you realise there are rules to what he can do. And for most of it, you're like, well, this is garbage. This isn't what the one is. And then you find out from, you know, via the architect that basically they gave him his one abilities deliberately to sell him as a messiah figure. I know it's a scene that's been parodied a lot and made fun of a lot and I'm honestly, I'm curious about what your thoughts are on it because, I mean, you said that when you first saw it you were like, yeah, I don't know what everyone's like going crazy about. I, I don't know how you feel about it on a rewatch. I think if you just pay attention, it's mm. all pretty understandable. It's not very confusing. In fact, I just rewatched it. I rewatched the, the main action scene in that yeah. before we recorded today just because I wanted to have it fresh in my head mm. and it's pretty straightforward. I think there's something about the delivery of the actor. He's a, he's a weird dude. Yeah, Sean Connery turned it down because he didn't understand the film, which is completely fair. Helmut Bacatus, who I've never seen anything before or since. His tone, his delivery is very monotone, so there's that sense of like... Well, he's doing a bit of an awesome Really, Wells, really boring really. college professor. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, that's... I, I think people just kind of were checking out and are like, bring me the, the flips. And, and yeah, so I guess in that sense, my reaction is still the same on that level. On a storytelling level, God, I mean, it's really weird to do a 10 minute monologue basically to end your movie. But I think this whole movie is kind of structured in a very, very strange way. It does not feel conventional by any stretch of the, any, uh, stretch of the imagination. And here in particular, it just feels like, all right, this is, this is kind of just like a reset. All right, but it feels, I don't know, it's weird. It's just like, because it's kind of, you know, at the end of the first one, basically, Neo is resetting the rules by stopping bullets, yep. you know, the way he dispatches Smith. And this kind of feels somewhat similar. And on that level, I appreciate the symmetry of it. Sure. But... It's also kind of a big fuck you to their whole, like, you know, you must go to this room and you will do this and you are the messiah. And yeah. it's like, no, nah, fuck you, you're just another in the long line of... Well, I think, and I think that is kind of cool whenever you stop and think about it. Yeah, and, and I, I like I the think... idea that, you know, because Morpheus is like the most pious man, like he is a true believer. We get through characters like Niobe and Locke, we learn that Morpheus used to be a regular dude. And then, you know, he got his prophecy from the Oracle and it's been his whole life since then. And I do really like him being such like a hurt bunny about it when he realizes it's all a fucking lie uh, in the third one. 
And I do feel like in some ways it's a really appropriate check on the really kind of boundless faith of the first one. And, you know, that was really, I mean, it's a sticking point to be. It's not a point of view I can really relate to, I think. At least not so, when it's so in your face. And I, I appreciate the cynicism of this on a certain level. Um, I think, though, I think the kind of the concluding thing, it's all about the payoff. I, I think this part in particular is hard to really assess without watching the third one, too. Yeah. It's like, okay, because really, I mean, I th- we're going to talk about this soon with the action with Neo, and you mm-hmm. alluded to it, obviously, with the opening scene, but it was really cool to see Neo stop billets, jump and destroy an agent, fly. But <laughs> when he's just Superman for the next film, yeah. it's kind of weird. It, it's lost and, its appeal. <laughs> and less interesting inherently. And I almost kind of wonder, like, are, like, world-changing reveals like that, are they almost best to just kind of be the end and mm. let that be it? Like, you don't need to... Um, you don't really need to see the conclusion. You don't really need to see what they're like. It asks questions, in my opinion, like, are the agents programmed unaware that Neo is supposed to accomplish his goals? Are they legitimately trying to kill him? What? But the machines know that they will fail? Or are they in on it and they're just... They, they're like pulling their punches like it's all a bit weird and like the key maker is an exile that they want to delete that the agents are trying to kill him but then the whole the key maker's entire role is to assist in this like fake prophecy and like he does what the oracle says so things like that get really murky when you introduce this this bombshell that you know your entire life is, is playing into our hands and like we gave you your abilities and all this sort of stuff yeah, and I'm just—I'm honestly not sure there are answers to those. I mean, like I said, I think it's very thematically interesting. I think this idea that you know human beings are much easier to control when they believe in something and believe in the savior, and they think that that's going to solve a lot of their problems. I mean, you can—I mean, you could honestly interpret this as very uh, funny uh, takedown of like the Democratic Party in a way over the last <laughs> hundred years or so, um, in that kind of sense where people don't fight for themselves and just wait around every 20 years for a gifted politician to come and, and win elections. That was actually kind of one of my thoughts during it, but it's, you know, I think I, I almost think with this, it's kind of, we got to see what the payoff is. We have to look a little bit more closely at the payoff, but it's, it's a rare case where I'm willing to be like, let's wait and see. It's interesting. It's thought provoking. It's a questionable uh, note to end on. It could be a disaster. It could be brilliant, but mm. I don't know yet. I don't know yet. I I want to I want to stew on a little bit more, and I want to watch the third one before okay. I comment further. Okay. Regardless, you can say it's a very disorienting note to end on. I mean, it would eventually be a good starting point for why did the third one kind of bomb? Probably, but I mean, I'm glad that you know the the first movie has a ton of action, but we talked about how it's like really meaningful action, and and it drives the plot forward, and it feels necessary. And I guess we can talk about like the action here compared to the first one, but uh, just to bridge to that, I appreciate that in a film with so much fighting in it, and the second one is, you know, the the take on it is the first one's a really good complete film, the second one's pure action, the third one is sort of pure story, but not great story. And the sec- in a film that is so much action, I do appreciate that they're building up to this huge moment, and it's just two men talking and I I appreciate that sort of subversion I would think I would be more bothered about it when I was a teen who just wanted to see people punch each other but I don't think I actually was disappointed by 
Yeah, I mean, I will say I remember. I don't think I saw it opening weekend, so it was really this finish. I heard that the finish was very confusing at the end, so I was kind of ready for it. I don't know. I just have very specific memory of that. But you know, I think unlike a lot of two-part movies, this one really feels like a two-part movie that just has a a stopping point that they thought would be the most like down point possible. And I think this contributes to that. This, it's not just that Neo's blacked out next to Smith, whatever the, the fuck's going on there, but yeah. it's also that what a what a story on the margins, by the way. <laughs> um, it's also that the the entire belief structure of this world is a lie. Every and it kind of feels like everything we know as viewers is a lie. Yeah, which is a really weird note to end on. I just I. <laughs> I, I I can't get around that. I think yeah. that is they change all the rules. Like you know, Neo destroys Sentinels in the real world, and and everything we knew about the One is a lie. And yeah, the whole thing has been sort of like, well, now the fuck what? Um, it, I mean, it does feel like an. It really does thematically appropriate. It's just also you know yeah. not that fun and exciting. <laughs> I think this movie uh, has like some pockets of good things that just cannot match the oh, sort of oh, yeah. the pace and the cohesion of that first one. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I spoke about it a second ago, but like the action compared to the first one. If you want to, if we want to talk about that, this feels a lot more cool for the sake of cool. Um, not completely yes. useless. Like it's not just like like we talked about in our Blade podcast. How you know that final fight in Blade Trinity? They were just like, shit. I don't know. What if it's this huge like glass business office and they'll fight in all these floors what's that got to do with anything don't know but we'll do it uh, it's not like that it doesn't feel out of place it's just it feels less urgent because because our heroes are now in a position of power like neo is the one they don't fear the agents anymore like morpheus welcomes a fight with one rather than be like ah oh, shit i'm fucked i'm taking on yeah. smith it just makes all I the just... encounters feel less meaningful it's like i get why neo doesn't fear taking on literally a thousand agents yes i i think those moments i think it somewhat unintentionally cheapens the confrontations that morpheus and trinity have later in the film though mm-hmm. which is a problem yeah you can make I mean, all the can... arguments you want about how like witnessing him do what he does makes them believe more or whatever but fundamentally these are upgraded agents as neo immediately points out so that you can know why it's taking him more effort to beat them and yet Morpheus and Trinity still either hold their own or win a fight against them. Yeah, and that's the thing. When it's a one-on-one fight now, all of a sudden it's a real fight, and it doesn't. It feels kind of 50-50. Yeah, like Smith takes, kicked Morpheus's ass that first time. Like, and, like, he was really toying with... I mean, not like he wasn't, like, openly toying with him, but Morpheus didn't stand a chance. And that was clear from beginning to end, and it, it, it's very disorienting watching the two films so close together for that particular reason. Mm. And I think they have a hard time justifying it within the story. And I think that is compounded by the fact that, you know, that tone is set right away with Neo versus the three agents. And it's a very aesthetically pleasing fight. It they the choreography is really, really fun in this movie from beginning to end. And obviously we'll get to the primary action beat in a bit. But it does seem like can't like Neo just like snap his fingers? Like I mean like what what are we doing here? Like what how is it even take this much effort anymore? And if he can take on a thousand agents, why is why is three even really an effort? 
Yeah. Is he toying with them? Why is he toying with them? Like, what? what is yeah, the point exactly. of it? And, you know, we talked about how The Matrix told so much of the story through action. This really, as you said, feels like we want to, we want, like, what can't, what can't we do? And it's just like, let's just do it all. And I appreciate that kind of movie. I think this movie, I'm really glad this movie exists for that reason. Because it really is just this visual feast of action a lot of the time. But when you're, you can't help but compare it to the first one while you're watching it because it's set in the same fucking universe. It's a sequel, for fuck's sake. And it's just, it feels like a far less disciplined movie. It feels like when you're watching, you know, like the Hobbit movies after watching um, the original Lord of the Rings, you're just like, you know, that it's such an overused phrase because the red letter media videos, but that art from adversity, it's like when you actually have restrictions on you, sometimes it can bring out something more. And when things are unlimited, you know, excess is not always a good thing. Yes. And, you know, here they just, they could just do whatever they wanted the entire time. And I think it pays off once really, really well. And I mean, it's the most infamous scene possibly in the entire trilogy, but the other action beats feel kind of hollow, especially when that, the Smith fight, you know, turns into a video game. It's and... it's aged really badly. I remember. But it, it looked bad at the time too. I remember that. From yeah. The time. It looked terrible. Like the it, bendy it pole and the. I know, but just I remember at the time there was a bit more praise for it from a technical standpoint, and now you look at it and you're like, Eesh. like none of these people look like real humans. That pole is bending when no one is even doing anything to it. Yeah, it's. Yeah. I don't know. I, f- I feel they just they got an idea in their head and they were like, "This all look cool," and it just ends up not. I feel it could have like there are, there are ways this could have looked really cool and, and been a cool scene, but it just it just isn't. Or maybe I've just seen it so many times I'm numb to it. But well, I, I, I end up appreciating what when you're making these big world expanding sequels mm. and you have this vision for something that's beyond just this film. You do this whole Smith thing in this movie, which doesn't really feel like they have time for it. No. This movie is not about Agent Smith. It feels like, okay, we need <laughs> and to yet keep that third one. going for the third one. Yeah. And I almost wonder if he should have been even much, he should have been even more on the margins. Mm. And the reveal of the unlimited Smiths comes at the very end or something like that. Mm. Like yeah. that. Like you only see like two or three and then it's like, oh no, they're off. And it's like, what's going on? Yeah. And, uh, I mean, it, and you it, even could do a thing where you, he's introduced at the beginning. Yeah. Something's like, we see a second one, whatever. We see the thing, how he does it. He does the thing with Bane. And then at the end, you just see a thousand come out of those doors, I think. Mm. Something like I think that. that would have been far more powerful and effective. Yeah. And well, I th- certainly, I mean, this is that that fight scene with the Smiths is my least favorite. Yes, of every action beat that happens in this movie. Yes, I feel they did what everyone did. Like they anticipated the question: if Neo's the one, what's his challenge? And it's like eighty agents. And it's like okay, but then it it just comes across hollow. I I feel... especially when the fact at the end of the day he's not really he never feels in danger at any point. Well, he gets I mean, tired like, and he has to run away, but. Like, he's not able to win that fight. I, I don't feel that, like, that answer was definitive. I think he just decided it wasn't worth it. No, you, you know, can like, see. He's, like, overwhelmed. All he can do is fly off. And then he's just, like... It's the best course of action, but it, does at any point do you ever feel like, man, Neo might die right now? Is that um, even... Yeah. He, that's, oh, a, that's his one limitation. He, he tires like a human would. 
mad. That's how he's he bleeds when he's fighting he's, the Merovingians people. He's so overextended that for a he brief I mean, second like he, he... Mad. He's, I'm not saying he's I think in he's no gonna, danger in the scene. I'm not saying he's... Well, by that argument, no one's ever in danger in anything but a final fight. But I'm just saying... No, but I'm talking about... From a like, narrative I mean, viewpoint... That was a, it's like a, okay, yeah, he, he bleeds. Like, if they whatever. had pinned him down by all of his limbs and Which Smith was just repeatedly did. punching him in the face, you could make the argument that his life was actually in danger. And I'm not questioning his strategy of running away. It was the logical thing to do. There's sure. nothing to be gained from fighting. And he does I'm it saying, again like, at the end. He's... This was a very hollow fight where his life, it never escalated to the point where he was in true danger, is my point. Okay, I, I think it does do that, but just the way it gets there is just a bit hollow. But, I mean, I, I'm left with, like, better feelings about the fight with all the Merovingians men because that's at least visually interesting with the, like, jumping around the stairs and shit. But, and, you know, they introduce weapons and it's like, why isn't his whole thing now that he doesn't need weapons? But I guess it's a different looking fight than we've seen so far. And, and I, what I would say is, that I, I think I agree with that, which is that it doesn't make any more sense, but it's by far, far so much more interesting to watch. Yes. <laughs> You know, it's kind of I, cheap I that they go from stopping a few bullets to, like, he stops hundreds of bullets. It's just sort of a immediate callback. It's like, oh, okay, I see what you did there. But What do you think about the Merovingian generally? Because they introduce, as I said, you know, they, they spend a lot of these next two films opening it up and you, you meet this character who predate. you know, he is of the same ilk as the Oracle and the Architect. He predates this Matrix. Uh, some fans speculate he designed one of the Matrixes, blah, blah, blah. It's Lambert Wilson just doing the most exaggerated French accent humanly possible. I, I think he's really funny, but I know some people find him very irritating. I think he is very appropriate for the tone of this movie, which feels like it takes place in a different universe than the first one. Yes. Uh, it then again, he also does send a woman an orgasm cake, so... You know. Yeah, and then you know it's funny. I saw a tweet in like the last two months that I was like, um, I think was like talking about the two Matrix sequels, and they're like, "Yeah, Matrix Reloaded like opened this idea that there are all these weird things like fucking like werewolves and shit." And mm-hmm. meanwhile, Revolution just like did nothing, and I'm just like, <laughs> "Werewolves? What the yeah. fuck are you talking about?" And yeah, and they introduced the idea of potential werewolves in this scene. Um, yeah, Michael, if you'd played Enter the Matrix, the the <laughs> you stake vampires, Mike. Yeah, it's. I I, mean, like I, said, I, I think when, it's when a, you have the budget and the time yeah. to do whatever you want, you can do whatever you want. And yeah. Sometimes that is good, and sometimes that is bad. I I think it's theoretically <sighs> interesting that he is surrounded by a group of like supernatural fuckboys who just seem like they just do coke and fight people. Um, it, they kind of remind <sighs> me of a. It's not as good, but uh, Deacon Frost's crew in the Matrix One. I wish they had done more with them uh, in Blade One. Sorry, um, I wish they'd done more with them. But I mean, yeah, it's I an think, abandoned plot point for sure. I think we get to the point with the Matrix where you get why the Oracle is like hiding out. But it's like, why does anyone else who's aware of what's going on like, what are they fucking doing? Like, what's the point of all this? Why are they here? Like, what is like, who cares? Like, it's all, like, that's, I guess, my take is that it was easy to watch. She does a funny accent. Monica Bellucci <laughs> is charismatic. It leads to an amazing fight sequences. The twins look cool as fuck. But, like, what? Wow. Why? Yeah. Like, what is going on? Like, why are we here? Like, well, party, it kind of reminds me of the of the off-planet 
uh, rescue with Finn and Rose in the last Star Wars movie where they're like... So Finn well, we... can learn about the plight of the common people and see another side of the... Mike, it's like you didn't watch The Last Jedi. Anyway, honestly, I know you hate this answer, but I feel this is genuinely all here for the game, the comics, the, the side stuff, because there is a lot of sort of... I don't know, because he, he comes back, and, and so, do, so does Persephone, and, like, they're key to the Oracle, and, and getting Neo back, and all this kind of stuff, but it's like, they introduce this this guy who can, who sort of operates on another level to them, and, he, and traffics in a very different kind of thing, and you're sort of expecting some kind of confrontation with Neo, and it never, ever comes. I mean, what I will say is, I don't, like I said, I don't want to... I don't stop telling you what happens on the next one so much because I don't remember. And I do want that fresh experience, but okay. like I do remember feeling like, okay, well, I guess they'll do something meaningful with them the next one, and I remember that they don't. And, well, I mean, you know, like Neo beats up all his flunkies and then he just walks off, and you're like, okay, yeah, he'll get you next and, time. Though. Like, <laughs> and so I get a fucking like he may, like what? I think the biggest problem in this movie is that when you ask why, there's not a whole lot there. It, I. In some of the ways, these movies are very interesting and Mm. deep. In some ways, these movies are very shallow, and you don't want to know why. Like, what... Especially when... I mean, especially when you watch with the first... The first one is so small, it's scale to the point where... You never see Zion, you only see one ship. Yeah. And it's not that it's a problem that they expanded the scale. It just feels like, why is everything bigger? Like, shouldn't they feel, shouldn't these people feel even smaller if we're seeing a bigger picture? And instead it just feels like everyone became a superhero since the last film. It's like everyone just became this ridiculous arch villain. And I'm just like, I don't know. I don't know. That that stuff bothers me. The good news is it leads to this. The dopest 20, scene in the film. <laughs> the 20 plus minute action sequence. And they kind of, in if you had told me on paper, I would have said it was stupid. But I think they construct it really well, which is that. The key maker runs away. He has magic uh, keys. Morph- yes. Morpheus and Trinity chase after them. And then Neo has a fight. And I think the way most films would have done it, they would have been cutting back and forth. And mm-hmm. this film kind of wisely just has Neo has his fight. Yeah. Conveniently enough, when that fight's over, something interesting's happening with with Morpheus and Trinity. Mm-hmm. And that really struck out stuck out to me as being a very, very wise editing decision. Like I was thinking back to like Phantom Menace when there's like five hundred things going on at the end of that yeah. film. And <laughs> get, back, know, to, I think get back to Darth Maul, damn it. <laughs> yeah. There's there's something to be said the fact that everything feels less important when you're giving equal weight to everything. Hmm. And here they just like they let Neo have his fight. It's yeah. very visually stimulating. Yeah. Why it seems to me that he probably could have just easily sent the bullets right back at everybody and killed mm-hmm. them all. I think one thing that's interesting about it, though, beyond that is it, it, you don't understand, like, what is his goal when he's fighting? Like, is he trying to kill them? Like, what is he trying to do? And then just very suddenly you realize everyone's dead. I, th- I, I, th- I, I think I that's a great not. question. Why does he even engage in fights? Yeah. Like, he gains nothing. Seems he like knows he could everything. kill the one. Yeah. But... Here, he kills everyone, so clearly there's no reason to have a moral issue in the first place, but he definitely doesn't have one. And it's very confusing. I don't... It's another one of those why questions, and, well, it looks cool is basically the answer. Yeah. In this case, it looked cool enough that I didn't care. <laughs> anyway, so he kills them all. Uh, cut to Morpheus and Neo being chased by the twins, who are actual, like, ghost things. They're ghosts. The ghosts. Yeah. The ghost twins. Ghosts, the twin ghosts. vampires, werewolves, seraphs and angel. Deal with it. Ghosts. And 
I think this is probably some of the coolest stuff. I mean, like the fights here with the ghosts are some of the coolest things here. I think clearly, my... like Trinity and Morpheus are like rattled and don't know what to do, but yeah. also how they're quick to respond was also very fun to watch too. Morpheus wisely grabs a sword, which leads to some of the coolest fucking shots in the entire in the entire thing. They end up at a car chase. I really like where the ghost turns into a ghost as he's about to be run over, and it was like. He's like slashes at Trinity's throat while he's still a ghost and like being like a run run over. But obviously he he can't transform back into a person yet for that scene. I don't know something about that was very cool. One because clearly like that tactic must have worked before where it freaks somebody out and they do something stupid like and break or something like that, right? And yeah. but Trinity just plows through. I don't know. I thought that was a really cool thing. Yes. <laughs> right before they everyone gets away though, like the the twins are in a car more trinity morpheus and the keymaker in the car it's revealed that neo was chasing them down and doing a very very light jog and <laughs> one of the twins closes the door he opens the door actually this happened twice and the door opens and reveals he's in the mountain somewhere mm-hmm. this Makes is one of those great with the mansion i don't want to know why it's cool this yeah. is another great like the the keymaker doesn't make sense to me nothing about this makes sense but why doesn't he make sense he opens back doors I don't, no, that's what I'm saying. I don't care though. I'm okay. not. I'm not. I'm not questioning anything. I don't want to know why. I just sure. accept it as cool. It, it's very. It's just cool. Yeah. It's interesting. This leads to a big car chase on a highway that they built specifically for this movie. Yeah. In it. In and of itself, very cool. They spent three remember, months filming it. There are entire films that don't take that long to make. They spent a month filming the the very dumb Agent Smith fight too. By they the way, that's, that sounds boring as fuck. Yeah. So in this highway. It's revealed, by the way, through like some like side conversations. You'd never go on the freeway. Yeah. It's a cer- certain death if you go on the freeway. Suicide, let us hope I was wrong, yeah. Yeah. Like, what? In all my years operating, sir, I've never... In all my years of operating? How long have you been an operator? <laughs> Why are all these people on the freeway if it's certain death to go on the freeway in your years of... What? Only for the rebels. I don't know. We probably could die. We probably spent an hour trying to debate the logic of that, but instead we'll just accept it. No, that makes sense. It's like, it's a place where the agents have access to a lot of people, a lot of vehicles. Like, it's just a playground for death, and it's not easy to get sure. off. Sure. It's, it's a really Elite, cool scene. More, they're more chasing, the twins are chasing have... after them, firing lots of bullets, and one of the twins ends up in the car, and I love this fight sequence where yeah. Morpheus is trying to find an angle on them somehow. It's like all these short bursts of action. Like holding him down with the seatbelt. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he finally is able to get an angle on the sword going through when the ghost gets out of it. It's so good. Yeah, I love him ghosting to avoid it, but that takes him yeah. out of the car, and it's like, oh, yeah, Morpheus, it was just such a perfect moment. Yeah. I like the and then when he ends involved in the middle and then they're both trying to shoot the agent and then yeah i, I like all of that yeah and then the agent the way the agent slot like slides out of the car to the top of the cop car was <laughs> so cool yeah. it reminds me of like some of the shit they did with legolas in the original lord of the rings like i mean clearly all cgi but the way they seamlessly uh, integrated into the movie just looked really really beautiful man this, this scene is so fucking great anyway they're being like their car shot to death it's about to run out they end up on an overpass they escape the freeway briefly uh trinity takes the key maker onto a motor uh, into a thing store motorcycles they're off on a motorcycle and the coolest shot of all time the most badass thing anyone's ever done is morpheus with his with a sword swinging and a gun in one hand standing down this suv and this is one of the most memorable things i've ever seen in a movie ever i can watch this I mean, I, I've watched this scene so many times. My history with this movie is basically 
if I see if I saw that it was on TV, I would see if this was coming up, and then I would stop what I was doing and I would watch it. <laughs> it's the dumbest fucking thing, but it's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. That's yeah. all. That's all I'm gonna say to that. Yeah. And anyway, he takes them down. He takes out the car with a fucking sword. Yep. Blows up the car with a gun. The ghosts are set into the air doing. Why? I mean, I don't understand it. I mean, they, no they go out, they go into ghost mode, so surely they're fine. But yeah, right, they're, like they're right, gone, like I you guess. know, you can't imagine that they die because they're in ghost mode. But your questions, like as ghosts, they're like fire sends them into the air. Why don't they just stay where they are? <laughs> anyway, it, it's so 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 good. Uh, this leads to Morpheus. So Trinity's being chased by agents. Morpheus gets the keymaker up I onto really the top like, of a truck. He, I really like the image of the keymaker holding on to Carrion Moss, who's in all levels, oh, yeah. speeding down the highway. It's like, what the fuck is happening? Yeah, and then yeah. the way that Morpheus uses like a sword as like a step yeah, is cool. really cool. And they, it's, cool. They, the way they set it up for later was so well done. And this is when the agent pops up on the van. And this is really the first moment in the movie where you're like, wait a second. <laughs> An agent popping up like this meant certain death, and Morpheus is just taking him head on. Yeah. And... Gets in some licks, think... cuts his face. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, you know... And they... to me, it's not so much that Morpheus is taking him head on. It's that when you felt... When Morpheus was fighting Smith in the first one, you couldn't believe Morpheus got out alive. Like, yeah. if he... Like, he clearly the only... They had to want him alive was the only reason why he got out alive. Yeah. Right? And, and the reaction from every other character around him was like, oh my god. And like, no, we have to go. And It's like, know. he's dead. It's yeah. like, there's nothing we can dead. do. He's made his go. choice, he's dead. Yeah. And you get no one reacting to Morpheus because there's no one around. It's just the keymaker who we don't see until and Neo well, has no to pick around, him up. But also, at this point, it doesn't feel like anyone would be reacting like that. Mm-hmm. And even when Niobe saves him, she's like, go kick his ass. And like, it's a cool moment. But mm-hmm. like, it was just six months ago in the movie's time. Yeah. One, I mean, one movie ago where we're like, agent is certain death. Run, 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 yeah. run, run, run. I mean, they they, um, they do what they can to frame it in such a way that he doesn't win the fight. He sort of no. takes the agent by surprise. But even yeah. so, like his level of competence is way higher than his fight with Smith. Yeah, and these are upgrades. Um, <laughs> yeah, and you know the danger of the freer is revealed. He just when he kicks the agent off, another agent takes hold of the truck. There, these trucks are going to collide. For some reason, Morpheus just kind of gives up in this moment. Like, he has no, like, maybe we should jump off of this van. We survive everything. <laughs> um, or this truck, pardon me. And so he kind of just accepts that either Neo's going to show up or they're going to die. Of course Neo's going to show up. <laughs> he has no reason, like, he's not been in contact with anybody. He just kind of trusts that Neo's going to be there, which, a little weird. A little, little weird. Video game scenes kick in again at this point, and it looks pretty ugly. Uh, I love that every time Neo flies, Link is like, oh my god, as if he's never seen it before. Yeah. Um, Speaking of video game scenes, just hear me out. The coolest level in that game, you drive as Niobe on that freeway, you're trying to catch up with the truck, and you can see Morpheus fighting the agent on top of the truck as you close in, and then as you get within range, it plays that scene from the film where Morpheus lands on the car. It's like, oh, that's, that's pretty cool sync up there but yeah uh i guess are those all the the big ones the the action scenes that you got the car chase the burly brawl the opening fight the merovingian fight i guess that's all of them. yeah i mean yeah. there's that brief fight at the end we don't really yeah ah, well okay so to transition from like how the action compares to the first film 
Do you want to talk about how the look or the tone... I mean, we kind of captured that a little bit with, like, you know, it. it's not as well-paced, it doesn't feel as urgent, it's a little bit more floaty. Yeah, I mean, I think the action really set the tone for the first one, where it's like, every, every moment is life or death. Mm. And this and... was just an exhibition in, like, Matrix what? fights. It's like, look, yes. slow-mo and flying and rule-breaking and, and martial arts by white people. <laughs> and, uh... This was just like, hey, you, you know how the Matrix made you imagine all these things? Here, we're going to give them to you. Yeah. Flight. And it's cool to watch. It mm-hmm. is cool, cool to watch. I would say, I think I think it's undeniable, though, that some of the magic's gone yeah. at this point. And really, no matter how they pay it off, the magic's gone. Yeah. Uh, the thing that made it cool, I think, is missing. And I think it's now just, like, good. Yeah. Even though, you know, the, the, the backdrop of this is 250,000 sentinels are tunneling to Zion and you're all going to die soon, and that it ends on that downer, you spend most of the film with the heroes in firm control, and that just... I can't really think of many films or TV shows where that is the case and it's good, you know? Like, everything just works better when the, the bad guys are on top and you're trying to overcome this impossible threat. And instead, they are the impossible threat. And yeah, yeah, even the ending is very confusing. I I usually say that's the most confusing thing. It's not clear to me what this new ship captain is is saying happened. I thought Zion... I remember remember this very distinctly. I remember watching that movie at the time thinking Zion had been wiped out, essentially. (laughs) No, like, Uh, they sent a couple of ships to, like, try and, like, EMP the, the diggers, basically. And then I think the ship that Bane was on essentially... I, th- I think Bane, like, sabotaged it, yeah. blew one of the ships. He set off the EMP too early, blew up the other ship, whatever. Yeah, he fucked them, because he's Smith. But it's like, Smith clearly has an agenda separate from the other machines, so why is he helping them here? Yeah, and I think that's a question we're not going to be able to tackle um, Unless it's just episode. like, oh, I hate humans, so I want to let them... You know, I don't like the machines, and I don't like the humans, so... Everybody dies. Fuck them both. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but I think, you know, just the look of it, it's a little bit less... There's a difference in the way movies and TV shows look in 1999 than the way they do in 2003. It's just, yeah. it's, there's, it's, there's, a, it's slicker, it's cleaner, you can see. Yeah. Like that first one we talked about, I, I struggle to think of specific examples, but there's just little shots here and there where you can tell they cut a corner in a smart way, like in a way that they could to like exploit, uh, to take advantage of, of every dollar they could or whatever. And this one feels like yeah. I mean, the cast is way bigger. Like They, they have 1,000 extras in that, like, uh, cave orgy in Zion. Um, yeah, that kind of reminds me. There's one thing that always kind of stuck out to me as odd, and that is, you know, five people in Morpheus's crew died in the first one, and there's only one replacement. And in fact, the one he replaced, we didn't even know he was dead. Indeed. That always struck me as odd. They never really, maybe they touch on the next one. I can't remember. But uh, they just, well, the kid. They, they just kind of mention it in passing. Yeah, though, the kid is, says, "I know you haven't filled any other position." I guess. Morpheus feels he doesn't need anyone anymore. Like he's the captain, Neo's the yeah. muscle, and you know Trinity is his dear friend and Neo's lover. So, and I, and I think I mean practically speaking, you're introducing all these other characters. You don't really yeah. have room for that. But like you don't want Nairobi should... to be a member of the crew or anything like that. I guess not. But yeah, that always stuck out to me as odd at mm. the time, and even now, it still doesn't really feel quite right. Even if you can justify it, 
I think the look of it fits the story they're telling more, which is that it's slicker and cleaner and mm. everything's a lot easier for everybody, even as things are getting theoretically worse. Yes. Uh, and I think maybe that's kind of like the contrasting thing, the contradictory ideas, is that everything feels easier, even though as the stakes are supposedly getting higher. Yes. And nope. I think that contrast is the main source of tension in this movie that I think, like I said, potentially that could be a really interesting idea. But I don't know if the follow-through is there. Like, our characters just feel invincible at that point. And that is a tough thing to navigate. There was a real sense of, like, impending doom in the first one, even as there was no, like, formal countdown clock as there is in this one. It's like, they will be here in three days! Like, okay. Uh, There was far far more sense of dread in the first one without that uh, clock. Yes. You know, the Sentinels coming for their one ship felt like a more real thing than there's a quarter of a million Sentinels coming to wipe out everybody. (laughs) Yep. And, you know, I think it's because we're just not really attached to anybody but our main characters, and our main characters feel invincible. Yeah, and they feel very detached from everything else, and, like, they, you know, they say how they never come home to Zion, and, like, you know, they're treated so differently. Like, Morpheus is a religious figure... Uh, a bunch of minorities worship Neo and leave him offerings. A little bit problematic. Um, well, I mean, Keanu is half Japanese. Let's not erase uh, his... Of course, of course. His um, non-white heritage. Indeed. I don't know, yeah, they just feel very separate from everyone. And, like, you know, they, they rebel against Locke, who... I also find it funny that there are people that clearly sort of don't believe in, like... It's one thing to not believe the one is coming. It's quite another when you know for a fact Neo can do all the shit he can do to like take yeah, that lightly. That was... It's like, yeah, fuck your Neos. <laughs> what? You know, he it's literally like... flies, man. Listen, like I, I believe certain things, but if a dude with a fucking beard turned water into wine tomorrow and it happened right in front of me, it would challenge some of my ideas about how the way the world works. <laughs> exactly. Um, it just, it just would. I don't. That that seemed very, very weird. It, it felt, it felt very cliche. Yeah. Just like, oh, he doesn't believe because he doesn't believe. Yeah. They they put Harry Lennox in a very difficult position there. I I can't spoil this for you because I don't remember how it ends up. But I don't remember if like Locke gets his redemptive moment where like. I can't remember either. Well, like no. you, the story you see, you would think the story is he's a bastard, but like he has to be, and like you get that moment where he's redeemed. But I don't remember yeah. if that ever comes. And it's also, I mean, like granted, there's a one billion couples on this planet that don't make sense, but just like okay, like whatever. You Why know, is Morpheus he with journey. Niobe? Yeah, yeah like more. Okay, I get leaving Morpheus. Morpheus is obnoxious, religious zealot. At the end of the day, that can be very unappealing. Mm-hmm. No questions asked. Sure. Like, what's the appeal of this douchebag? Like, I mean, come on. <laughs> He's powerful, like, it, Mike. It, it, He's it really in charge like of the a, fleet. He's her boss. Yeah. It's, it really it's just wrong. feels like a device to add tension to Morpheus and Locke, which that, yeah, I think that's yeah, yeah. the issue to me, is that... And, and it didn't um, need it, because they're already just diametrically opposed from their beliefs and stuff. So you don't need to, like, throw her in there like she's a... doesn't have agency or whatever. Agency feels yeah. like a pun in this film about agents. Uh, you know, and she's not like that, because, I mean, she does... She does stand up for herself, but it's just... I don't know, it, it felt like it was selling her a little bit short, because I don't think you ever see any kind of intimate moment between Naomi and Locke. You're just told that they're together. Yeah. I could be wrong, there could be like a big scene with them in Revelations I've forgotten about, but yeah, I don't I don't think there is. <laughs> so it's too bad we probably have more to talk about, was what a cliffhanger that would be. 
do Niobe and Locke have a moment of intimacy in Matrix Revolutions? Find out next week. Wow, well, there you go. The Scorchers. <laughs> Just edit that out. Put that in at the end there. You got it. It's a winning, it's a winning it. cliffhanger. Yeah, it's almost. You know, I think that's this point thing is that pretty much they have they add all these extra characters, and I don't feel attached to any of them. I felt more attached to Apoc and Spock, or whatever the fuck their names were. Apoc. Uh, switch, switch. 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 <laughs> There we go. I guess the one we really should talk about is Link. Mm. Uh, Har- Harano ten- from, from Lost. Yeah. Who was willing to take less money. <laughs> one, I I enjoyed Tank more. Yeah, I think I think this dude is charismatic, but you just you just miss Tank. Like Tank had that sort yes. of sincerity about him. There was something about Tank's chemistry that worked. Yeah. despite him being kind of like the oddball fourth person out at the end there. Mm-hmm. And you also kind of know it's like they almost wrote, wrote themselves into a corner and only one per, one person had to survive. So, like, it doesn't feel like he... It felt like they had no choice but to keep him alive. But even still, despite all that, Tank totally feels like he fits in. Mm. And to be fair, that they, they, they tell that story with Link, that Link is not really a part of the crew. Um, he is not... He is the odd person out in a lot more ways here. But... They they never really just have enough time for Link. They've got too much other shit going on. All the stuff feels very phoned in. Yeah, like and, he um, like he's doing it out of obligation to. He is with. He is with Tankan Dozer's sister. Yes, and and Gina Torres was playing Dozer's wife, I think. Yes, yes, and I believe it's actually the only. I don't think she's in Revolutions, if my memory serves correctly. Which either, seems yeah. odd, but uh, yeah, that's. That's an odd, like the logical thing to do, yeah. but it felt like uh, very tenuous. Like it's good that they didn't just say, "Yeah, you're tank." Um, and that would have been worse. Yes, of course, infinitely. Um, I, I don't. It says a lot about what the t- TV and film industry is like that I consider that impressive when when characters don't just get recast like that. Yeah, but it feels a little bit tenuous. And like, oh, remember tank? I mean, we don't want you to, but if you do, <laughs> this is why. Um, and you know how he didn't seem to have mortal wounds at all? Well, he's dead now. He's Why? Dead. We don't have time. Yeah. And you can kind of understand it. It's like how much time do you really want to devote to an actor who did not come back, but mm. it doesn't feel right. Something um, about it feels off and wrong. And, yeah. uh, you know, like I said, I had an attachment to Tank. I had more of an attachment to every other character <laughs> on that ship than I did to, yeah. like I said, think any new character here. Yeah. It's it's kind of funny seeing Cornell West there. Especially, I didn't know who he was at 14. But uh, that's fun. Mm. But he doesn't really get to get anything. Uh, Roy Jones Jr., the boxer, <laughs> is one of the cats. I will what? say, he is one of the best line deliveries of anyone in this Is it the one that... where he says, shut your whole bang da- or I'll Dan put Morris, you in one? No, it's, damn it, Morpheus, you ain't ever going to change. Oh, okay. Yeah, you got good. 36 hours. I'll give you 36 hours, though. Yeah, and but that, for some cool. reason, that line has always stuck out to me as, like, really well delivered. Yeah. Uh, and then I found out, like, a week ago, or I remembered a week ago when I saw it again, that it was Roy Jones Jr. of all people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, I was like, I'll do this just to see what Locke does with you. You got 36 hours. <laughs> I want to see more of Roy Jones Jr. is my main point. But, yeah, all these all these new characters I just don't have the attachment mm-hmm. to. Um, Nona Gay as Z, that was infamously going to be Aaliyah, but she tragically... That, I had forgotten all about that. That's uh, sad. Yeah. Colin Chu as Seraph. There are conflicting reports about who they went to first for this role, Michelle Yeoh or Jet Li. We do know Jet Li <laughs> turned it down. Rumors that he wanted 
as much money as Keanu Reeves or he thought he was too famous to play a like side role or something. I was like, okay, if you say I, so, I, bro. <laughs> well, one, what I'll say to that is, is that the money, one, what's funny is that Keanu's contract at the time felt far more infamously high than what our standards now would be for infamously high. Yeah. Like, I think he made probably like $50 million between the two movies, which I think now he got, like, I think he got box office. Oh yeah. Percentage. Something like that. Sure. I'm saying like, I think even like, his contract alone. Or oh yeah, like yeah. That. It was... And I remember the reaction at the time being like, "Oh, my stars and garters!" But like now, it's like, "What?" Well, I mean, um, the budget was like between somewhere up to around 150 million, and a hundred of that was special effects. So they had around 50 million to play with for the rest of the cast and everything else. So yeah, he can't have been paid that much. He did get those ticket sales, which he offered to give up allegedly because they were worried um, the movie wasn't going to do well, which is crazy. But. Two, I think also remember this, you know, the negotiations for this are probably happening at the, you know, beginning of the 2000s, really. Because I think they started, I mean, remember, Aaliyah died in 2001 mm-hmm. and she was filming already. So, like, this movie, this movie took a while to come out. Yeah, they, they um, started on it and the, the actors started training in 2000. So, like, yeah. a, a year. So, that means the negotiations song. were happening in 2000. Yeah, yeah. Remember, the 1990s were a far more star driven model for movies. Yep. And Jet Li definitely probably saw himself, at least overseas, and probably to a certain extent in America too, as a star. And, you know, there's a reason why Denzel Washington will never be a lead on True Detective. Like, it's. <laughs> He's all that there. <laughs> yeah, like, they're. There are people from that era, like, they just don't compromise on that. Like, mm. you're a star, you present yourself like a star. I mean, you Woody Harrelson like... came up through TV, so he gets it. Like... <laughs> well, no, I mean, like, I mean, I was, I know, that I was really just an example. But, like, there's still that old, there's still some of that seeping in somewhere. Like, if Tom Cruise didn't have to rehab his image for being, you know, an awful human being, <laughs> like, he was never going to do Tropic Thunder in a supporting role. You know, like, there's no. just certain things you don't do if you're a star yeah so i can kind of see what jet Li was talking about sure if i'm putting myself in his shoes yeah michelle yeah would have been cool though yeah it would <laughs> our last appearance of gloria foster is the oracle yeah and i think we probably we owe it to her i i think it's really unfortunate on a number of levels that she died but particularly the fact that we're supposed to question a lot about what the oracle is and the role and what does she mean and the re- the recasting kind of throws like some shade into that where we should it, it just it's a shame it was not her for that for those moments and that reveal and all yeah. those stuff and i don't remember any of it but i know obviously just based on this one enough we know enough that the oracle is not this wise old sage that and that's her only role to be wise or anything like that like there's a lot more to it with the mythology of the show mm-hmm. or the universe but um yeah, she was a real charming uh, grandmotherly figure. Mm-hmm. Offering cookies, offering candy, sitting on benches. Yeah. All right, Matt. Insert Niobe lock tease. <laughs> okay. This has been another episode of the Sky Scorchers. Join us next time when we will run down the Matrix Revolutions. And I will now edit in that. And hopefully it will be smooth. And if it's not, for safety as a backup, thank you for joining us. Goodbye. What you say, what you say, what you say, what? What you say, what you say, what you say, what?